All right, people, next episode of Talking Thrones here tonight, season two, episode four, entitled The Garden of Bones. Pat, I think you had a little bit of an interesting non sequitur for this one, considering that for the second time, the title of the episode is related to your absolute favorite storyline in this whole season. Hey, I wonder if all the talking TV fans understand that this is the garden of uninteresting storylines <laughs> that Danny is entering into. It, it grows, right? You know, isn't it, that what it, that it phrase does is? It does grow. It does indeed grow with every person that that is left outside by the Carthedes. But all of that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. So right. Danny recognizes <laughs> her soldier has a new horse, right? That's it. Oh, you got a brand new horse. What's that from? Oh, it's it's Carf. You say, let's go, let's go. Uh, and then the next scene is, you won't oh, let me man. in. Damn. You won't let me in. Oh my god. Oh, I'll let Hold you. On. In. Back up. Back up. No, Back Danny's up. over. We just we just talked. <laughs> we, just oh, we just talked over the whole scene. Look, I mean, I think it's safe to say that, like, at this stage of the journey, every Game of Thrones head kind of knows that, like, this Danny storyline this season in season two, book two with Clash of Kings is kind of the worst. It's just awful. She's just yeah. wandering around the desert, and then she gets stuck in a city, and she's there for the whole time, and then at the end, her dragons breathe fire at a creepy-looking warlock. And she has some visions of the future that give people at the end an excuse to be like, hey, I was watching the show the whole time. And then she locks some people in the safe and then she leaves. Like, you know what? It, you know what I will applaud, though, is like, you know, when when the horse, the new horse comes up and the rider is like smiling and happy. The the wardrobe, you know, for Danny and the rest of the gang is like the perfect dystopic. Like, we're totally ruined. We're not going to survive. You know, it's yeah. all in tatters. It's really beautiful that wardrobe. It may have been better for Westeros if, like, they their 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 if, if they ended up going continuing that direction, just ended up wandering around the desert for all of eternity. Yeah, I don't know. They they kind of look like the ragtag group from like uh, Newsies or kind, maybe kind like, like a, off, kind of look like an <laughs> off brand Mad Max crew that didn't get that didn't get any of the technology. Maybe, yeah, they're just waiting for, uh, you know, uh, whatchamacallit, Mel Gibson to come by and say. That might prove to be slightly more problematic. But people, this is season two, episode four, episode 14 overall of our Talking Thrones series right here. We're talking about the this episode, which is entitled The Garden of Bones. First time director and writer, we have David Petrarca, who would direct this episode. And the next episode, we have Vanessa Taylor, who would write three episodes for the show. This episode, episode six, The Old Gods and the New, the Old Gods and the New, and then episode Episode two of season three, Dark Wings, Dark Words. She's also an Academy Award nominated writer who was nominated recently for her co-writing The Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro. So she's definitely been around a lot. Well, what I will say about this episode before we get started is that it once again is playing off of the last episode as far as here. There's a lot of action that's going on. It's juggling a lot. But there's also a lot of instances where it kind of steeps into, like, expository territory. Case number one being, as we just got out of the way, because, like, it's it's the worst part of these first couple. Like, it's the worst part of the season, yeah. but it's also the worst part of this first couple episodes. It's just an Eris yeah. wandering around. The first episode, we just see she's got dragons. She sends off her riders. The second episode, one rider comes back without a head, or rather, the horse comes back without a body, and the head's in the pouch. And then so the, the handmaid says something about him not being able to go to the Nightlands, and that was the title for that episode. And this episode, she finally arrives at cards. She's received by the thirteen which are the kind of the merchant council that oversees them. And finally, we actually get some interest from some interest when Zarzo and Doxos, who's a member of the 13, uh, enacts some policy that happens in all of these medieval movies where he slices open his hand. What What is it, Pat, about slicing open your hand that just like, just shows, like, yeah, I'm serious. You know, like, I always wondered that. Yeah, I'm not sure what it does in this case. <laughs> it's just like, I'm going to gash my hand, like... Okay. It's really yeah, I guess I guess it's one of those uh, you know world building things that we don't have to understand. 
Maybe, maybe. And, and you know what I'm going to be looking for is the next couple episodes. I'm going to be looking to see if the scar is still there or if it's uh, instantly healed. He's, you know what it is? He's probably going to have his head, his, the back of his head facing the screen the entire time, so you're never going to be able to see it. And that's probably yeah, it, it's possible, see. but I'll I, be I looking for you. it. I I'll be looking you. for I, it. I know you will be. And now that you put me onto it, I'm going to be looking for it, too. But she gets received by them. She at first says no because they're like, yeah, we want to see the dragons. Like, So we, we've heard a lot about dragons, but we want like some visual proof. And she's like, I'm tired. And I'm not going to show you the dragons. I'm like, okay, okay that that's smart. Whatever. And then they, of course, leave. They're about to go back inside, and Zarazo and Doxus is like, okay, they can come in because I'm going to slice my hand. That's about it. That's literally all the Daryl yeah. does. But where are the dragons? Like, there's only, like, 15 be- of them, and, and, like, they have clear they're being, they're being held in that one luggage. cage. They're, they're being held in that one cage, basically. It's like, it wasn't even like they even had to take it out of the cage. They literally just had to, like, throw up the burlap sack, and that was yeah. it. Why doesn't one of the merchants just be like, is it that cage over there? <laughs> you know, like, like... Like, I think that's the dragons. Just just take the cloth off, you know. Oh, I, I don't know. It, it's it's one of those storylines where um, watching this season again, you know, it's um, you know it, it's a very slow storyline. It's a very uh, short storyline. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's not like the the most bang for your buck, so to speak, storyline yeah. that there is. But you know, I think it's it's really important for her character because yes. once again, she's at ground zero. And she's meeting these new people who basically have the best of her and she's going to, you know, sort of come into her own and realize like, no, it's it's with these dragons, I have power, you know, so it's, you know, before it was sort of, you know, she had power as a, you know, Khaleesi. And now this storyline's about her getting power as right. the mother of dragons. And, really and so also- it's a nice small little arc um, that basically uh, is. Um, you know, stands in the sh- shadow of Tyrion and his, uh, you know, basically right. exploits. Right. Season two is primarily Tyrion, right? And even though, again, John and Danny are enlisted as the main characters, right? This is still in kind of like the early phase. They're learning more progressively, but they're still very much parked in the side, right? Because their storylines are also so far removed from everything that's going on in the main action that they can kind of keep it away. You know, you just kicked off John's last couple episodes that he was, you know, dealing with Craster and everything up north. And you got Danny's. Now you got Danny, everything going on over here in Carth. And then you continue with John and the Wildlings next season and Danny conquering the slave cities. And, like, progressively, it's interesting how Martin keeps these characters so far outside of the action that by the time they do and are ready to come into the action, they've already kind of had fully formed journeys on their own. So even though it seems like nothing's really happening in the moment for Daenerys, long-term, definitely, you can tell, definitely tell this is a story that's going to uh, make a difference because, again, it's kind of... She learns crucial lessons here just about, like, kind of ownership and, like, kind of like what, what what the price of depending on certain people is here exactly and kind of you know this is really her first example you know because she's primarily been with the Dothraki before this and now she's like in a merchant city and she's beginning to understand the idea of commerce you know and the idea of like having to make deals with people that you don't like like all of that it's it's very interesting how the seeds are still being sown even if it's unfortunately kind of a case in a storyline that is a little bit stretched out for its own good because the whole thing is that there's so much else that's happening in this season like there is so much that happens Within these first four episodes alone, it's kind of insane how how much it still surprises me every single time I watch it. Yeah, like we're we're seeing Joffrey become a young budding torturer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like oh right in front of our eyes. You know, um, what does he do? He basically um, with Sansa. You yeah. know, well, so well, well, so so it takes. <laughs> well, we gotta, we gotta take one season. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so the opening of the episode. Yeah, so the opening, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, so the it opening is- of the episode basically <laughs> sets us up for this kind of torture sequence that comes in, which is where Rob's camp, we have this little funny scene with these Lannister guards uh, who are eventually, all, of course, all killed as Rob attacks one okay. of them. Um, Dom, of the I, don't, I, I don't think any scene that involves, like, fart humor as the center of yeah, the story is really a great scene. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> having the wolf, that, that like, attack little, someone that, was that, pretty that, awesome. That, that, made it, that made it all satisfying, because I'm like, oh, man, I'm like, Betty Off and Weiss are better than this. They, they gotta go to a fart joke really that's what they're doing here but yeah so it ends up of course we we see the aftermath it, it, it pulls another classic early game of thrones move where we only see the aftermath of the battle we see rob stark wandering around the battlefield and we get another new character introduction to another character that always oh, definitely going to be rob's ally in the near future roose bolton uh you know him and rob are having a debate over what to do with the prisoners bolton suggesting that they torture prisoners rob's kind of reminding him like okay to, you know this kind of torture was forbidden in the north and then of course he meets 
the next oh, yeah. installment well, well, in his journey towards Bal- death. Balton's uh, has this great line, right? Or it's like yes. uh, a naked man tells no lies, but or something like that. And then, yeah, but a, like fla- a, a naked man, uh, a naked man tells no lies, but a, a, but a dead, but a flayed man has none, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really like I, we should go back and uh, get the exact quote, but like, yeah, right. Oh Pretty man, that quote. That really is a great, you know, introduction to who Balton is, you know, as a character. It's like, oh, man, he he, torture is his thing, Um, which, you know, should be a little bit of a hint here. You know, Balton, Joffrey, they both like their uh, torture time. Indeed. Yeah. And even though this scene is primarily used as like like another exposition set up in order to launch us into the next scene, we still get introduced to Talisa, my gear, who this is the first, I believe, instance in which, um, like, we see this, what's it called? The, the, we've seen this a couple happen a couple times going forward throughout the show, but this is, I believe, the first instance in which a character is completely changed from the books. Like, completely different name, completely different character, because the character that Rob Stark ends up marrying in place of the fray that, you know, that caused him to break his vow with the phrase that we saw made last season, uh, this season is a character, in the books, is a character named Jane Westerling, who is a member of a house. Uh, called the Westerling House. That's a small house, basically, because he took a wound at this battle in the crag, and Jane Westerling helped nurse him back to health. And the whole thing about the Westerlings is it's very ambiguous about, because they're, they're a Westerosi family, it's very ambiguous about where their loyalty lies. Um, what's it called? You know, they, they claim to be, you know, for Rob, but they're, but there's also, like, allusions that, like, the, the, the father's family member might suggest that they are actually secretly still in debt to Tywin, right? And there's potentially, um, you know suggestions that this family is takes a part in in the portrayal of Rob and Cat in at the Red Wedding in addition to the Boltons and the Freys. But in the show, it is completely replaced by just their, their go-to, again, because, again, they saw it work so well for Shay, so they're like, screw it, we'll just do it for Rob, too, which is where they have this uh, beautiful, kind of, you know, mysterious, you know, foreign beauty. Uh, that would be that being the character of Talisa Mygear from Volantis, who is just a healer, who is just once again there to kind of, you know, throw in the moral gray area and kind of, you know, show Rob, it's like, hey, it doesn't matter whose side you are, you're on, what justice you're kind of doing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's all just people. It's all just meat, and then all yeah. your causes are meaningless. But, like, I, w- I wanted to get your take on that. Like, wh- wh- why do you think this changed? Wh- why do you think this changed? Um, well, in, tw- in, in, like, 20 years when they have a kid, you know, and the kid's asking, how'd you meet? Oh, <laughs> I was in the middle of amputating, you know, a teenager's foot, and uh, he and came over. And came over. Yeah, he swaggered over. And I told him what's what. Uh. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, for the most part, I would say that it's a great scene. The two of them are basically throwing back some personal philosophy. And it ends with, um, you know, Rob saying, hey, this kid is lucky you were here. And then she quickly retorts like, uh, but he was unlucky that you were here. And so it's one of those things where she doesn't let it go. Uh, she tells him exactly the situation and that he should not forget uh, exactly what he did to these uh, people, even though they're sort of Lannister men. Uh, even in this scene, she says like six months ago, you know, they threw a spear in his hand and, and that's probably the first time it was ever in this person's hands. And so it's the reality of war that Rob can't forget. And that's that's really what she brings up uh, when they first meet. Right, and I, I guess kind of my interest in this scene, right, because they intro- they in- they introduce her as a character that is supposed to be kind of like, you know, supposed to open Rob's eyes as far as, you know, what kind of, what their war is actually accomplishing versus what he thinks it's accomplishing. But my, I, I guess my problem with this whole character and how they phrase it is that with knowing where it's going as far as with the decision for the Red Wedding, she ultimately becomes yet another plot device because she is literally only there to kind of seduce Rob into like kind of thinking, changing his way of thinking for the war so much so that he's willing to break his vow to the phrase and essentially all get them to the re- to where the Red Wedding ends up, you know? And I guess just it's, it's another situation like Shay where it's like, but in a way kind of more egregious because at the very least with Shay, like that character portrayal, like it actually, you know, does hurt even if I think that, you know, kind of the personification in the show versus the books is a, is a little bit, you know, off. But 
I don't know. I just can't help but feel like the like the version of the char- of this character that they have in the books with her kind of being this, you know, what's called so- somebody who they're not quite sure is on their side or not. But Rob is kind of forced to enact this what he considers this honorable act because where she helped heal him and as a result he kind of feels obliged to marry her. Like I don't I don't know. Like what, what what's kind of your whole take on that? Um, you know, I, I think there's a couple of characters like Shay and. Um, Talisa. I, I, Talisa, there we are. Uh, and Talisa, and even Roz. Like, Roz is another character that, you know, started in season one, you know, is sort of like uh, having a fling with Theon, decides to move down the King's Landing, you know, becomes uh, a really good employee for uh, Littlefinger, you know, Lord Baelish. And then. She gets into this whole Joffrey storyline that we're about to talk about and, you know, gets uh, really trapped in the middle of the war between Cersei and uh, Tyrion. And Roz's character is also very, you know, plot device driven. It's like, let's bring her up whenever we need, you know, a character to sort of be, um, you know, at that level, you know, that very like trying to climb up the ladder. But really, uh, no one's no one's letting that progress. You can only get to a certain point, and you know it it's becomes a plot device. You know, in terms of who Roz is as a character, and I, I think that happens with uh, a lot of these side characters. They're just sort of you know, hey, like Pycelle. It's like just bring him <laughs> up yeah. whenever we need a good joke. You know, someone yeah. to be slapped around, and yep. you know, uh, or someone to sort of. Uh, you know, give some some uh, what was it like diarrhea medicine he was something given like to that. Tyrion or something, something like that. Like that. Um, you know, so it's it's like there are these uh, sort of characters that are just there uh, that do have a big impact on the the main characters, but you know they're they're just really support and um, you know it, it's quite clear that you know the writers of the show really are are you know they know who their support characters are. And they know what they're there for, and they're very economical about them. So I think Taliza is one of those characters where it's like you just need to give the audience enough, you know, uh, to like her, and then it's like, oh, of course, Rob wants to hook up and marry her, right? And then obviously the red wedding is is sort is, of is, is a coming. You know. The red wedding is a coming. <laughs> yeah, we still gotta get past Blackwater first, but yeah, we and we and we'll definitely get into that as we talk about that the right and the rest of the episode. But yeah, it's definitely another one of those things where it's like. Again, I, I I try not to harp on this too much as a book reader, but like every time I see that, I'm always like, huh, like what? Because it, it, like I said, it's it's one of those things where it's like what what a plot device character kind of becomes obvious versus like okay, they kind of actually did you know serve a purpose in the, in the books, even if their purpose was eventually to die. But yeah, it, it sounds it. interesting, you know, the way you put it in the books, and you know, if I had read yeah. the books, maybe, well, maybe I'd have about, more of an opinion. Well, but well, 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 uh, the whole thing about the, about the Jane Westerling character from the books is that it, it, right? It's all from Cat's point of view because because Rob is not a focus character in the book, so we're all seeing the entire thing progress from Catelyn's perspective. And so the thing, what happens is like throughout the entire time, Cat is running back through her head like all the different Westerling family lines and who married what and who, and she's basically like she's kind of putting it together in their head that like their intentions might not be all pure here you know but by the time she puts two and two together it's too late the red wedding happens so that's what kind of adds a little bit more intrigue and mystery there but that would have been interesting to give catelyn sort of like a a sherlock holmes investigation over season two and three right especially since catelyn kind of gets taken down a peg where she basically gets stripped entirely of her power once she ultimately makes the decision to release jamie not to mention the fact that with with the death of her father and the introduction of her extended family in season three, it's kind of she's kind of just left to like sit there and mourn until she inevitably dies. It, it really is kind of a takedown because she was because even though the extent to me of her um, inclusion in the story really dies out after this season, I said she still like had like a lot of like intrigue area and it still obviously was extremely tragic when she ultimately met her end in the books, but. I don't know. It, it was just always something that like w- was of interest to me as far as kind of like the Talisa character goes. Because in my opinion, again, not one of the stronger characters just in general. And um, what's called because she she was upgraded to yeah. main cast member status for the next season. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, <laughs> I guess I don't know. You kill some characters off. Yeah. You need to up them for uh, main event status. Yeah, you know. True, true. But the the most part, I would say, you know, 
um, whenever you're creating a story for television, you have to condense the book into right. the, the new format. And, you know, I think one of the things that they're brilliant at is doing this editing where it's like, we just need to give you enough about this character. We can't overcomplicate it. You know, it's it's really just Rob marries her. That leads to his demise. Right. You know, it, that's all she is. You know, any of the scenes that they write are really just to help with the illusion to get you from, you know, he made a mistake to uh, what the the actual uh, impact of that mistake is. Yes. And I think they do a, a pretty good job of sticking to what needed to actually be on screen. Yes, absolutely. So let's get into it. Let's get into the main storylines of this episode. First up, King's Landing uh, starts with a pretty gruesome opening in King's Landing for a myriad of oh, different reasons. So it, it transitions. Okay, let's just talk about Joffrey yeah, right? yeah, uh, I, I know. going your, to your, torture your city. Character, your favorite character this season, <laughs> Joffrey. You, you've talked quite a lot about him. Man, you know, it's okay. So obviously, Rob wins this battle, and then. Joffrey's got something to say about it, and he yeah. ha- he has his crossbow now, yeah. and he's oh, just like he's, cranking that, that it, crossbow. And, and he's he holding it right at he Sansa. That crossbow more than any of his two of his uh, any of both of his swords. Yeah, hey, I wish he actually had like maybe one cool scene where he actually used the the crossbow. Like maybe they should have done like a hunt oh. scene. Oh well, like, funny funny you mentioned that. Funny you mentioned that, and it's funny that we have this particular scene in this episode because that's almost foreshadowing for what comes next season <laughs> when Ross inevitably meets her demand. Meets well, her okay, but you know that that's that's still like a, a ways away. That's a ways away, but that's also like a, a post mortem scene. It just yeah. cuts to the aftermath. You know, it, like if he went on a hunt or something and took down a wild boar, Joffrey w- w- going on a hunt. Who is he, Robert? Hey. I don't know, man. That would that might be uh, interesting. You know, yeah. obviously it's out of character, but uh, you know, w- what is it else is he going to do with a crossbow? Like, yeah. no, but no one threat, wants to s- see him Sansa. actually. No one wants to see him actually torturing someone with right. a crossbow. But, but he just Joffrey um, Joffrey just makes that a thing. He just he has gotten to the point now where he is so in his own head as far as what what kind of a king he is that he's just going to blatantly threaten Sansa in front of the entire court of people. I'm like, wow. So this is this is the type of king he is. Like, cool. Yeah. Well, Joffrey's uh, real sort of idea is that if he's just uh, you know ruthless towards everybody. Everybody will fear him, which means they'll, you know, just follow him. So he believes in the whole fear, you know, is what gets people to stay, you know, in line. And that's something that, you know, Tywin has probably utilized, you know, for the Lannister family. So, but like Joffrey's so young that he doesn't really understand what fear is, you know, what, or how to use fear in that way to keep people in line. Right. So his his idea of fear is just like chop off Ned's head. Let's uh, rip Sansa's dress apart. Let's do all this like uh, stuff that's like really grotesque, and it's it's not working for Joffrey at all. And it's interesting that you bring that up, too, especially since we see, obviously, the stark contrast in this episode alone between Joffrey and Tywin with how to handle things, right? Where Joffrey delights in the torture and just wants to do it over and over. The torture is brought up quite frequently in this episode. I just realized that. First with Roos, and then with Joffrey, and then later on, obviously, at Harrenhal. Meanwhile, when Tywin gets to Harrenhal and sees, obviously, all these prisoners getting tortured, he's like, are we so... Dra- are, are we so like stock full of labor so we can't use these prisoners you know it's, it's like he, he understands the value of mercy and that's part of what makes him so feared you know versus Joffrey just wants to delight in it just by making everyone just kind of his playthings almost but ultimately Tyrion quite literally comes in at the last minute to save the day and even though his time in this episode is brief it is once again memorable I, I said so last episode was his Emmy reel but this episode like just the, the, the moment that he has with Joffrey it's like the only thing that, that that quite tops it is obviously in two episodes when he gets to belt him across the face like three times. But <laughs> but yeah. he obviously, you know, he 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 berates Joffrey. He says, "Wow, so you're doing this like in front of a whole court of people, and she's supposed to be your queen, and this is how you're treating her? Like you're you're not sending right? This is all about image, right? And right now, right now, image wise, the Lannisters are not looking so good. Stannis is doing us no favors, right? And so you 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 you've got to start acting up as far as that goes. Then of course, Marin is like, he's like the king could do what he likes, and Tyrion's like the man. Well, actually, Actually, Joffrey like. says that, right? You know, right, Joffrey's, yeah, Joffrey's like, I can do whatever I want. Yep, and Joffrey basically <laughs> says he can do whatever he wants. Tyrion's like, the Mad King did as he wanted. Did your, has your uncle Jamie ever told you what happened to him? Kind of trying to reinforce and educate his nephew that, like, uh, that like a king quite literally doing whatever he wishes usually does not work out well for him in the long run. And, of course, you have this 
Oh, yeah, how dare God. you? How dare you? Th- uh, how dare threaten, you threaten to, the liege? Right? How, you know? No one threatens the king. <laughs> and then Tyrion's like, "I'm not threatening him. I'm educating my nephew, Bronn. The next time he speaks, kill him. Just incredible." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just and incredible. then and basically Tyrion makes a point of saying, "Hey, you know, there's a difference between education and a threat. Like right. you just saw me threaten you." <laughs> you know, so yes. uh, again, it's, it's Tyrion having that that wit. Are, are you know being perceived to have that wit in this scene uh, to to really outrival um, you know his family members and in this case uh, uh, Joffrey, um, but I, I think it's Bronn, right? Bronn comes up with the idea like, hey, yes. Joffrey might need a little R and R, yeah, yeah, to say the least, and that does not go well at all because yeah, so so and Bronn, <laughs> you know. Bronn being a sellsword and, and the guy that basically, uh, you know, would be hanging out in a tavern or a brothel and are both uh, basically is like, hey, why don't you pay for some ladies to visit Joffrey and uh, allow him to sort of forget being a king for the evening and enjoy, yep. you know, um, get some much needed relief. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So Roz and I, unfortunately, I don't remember the yeah, other another prostitute. Uh, I, I don't think she ever has know, a name. Act, I, I, yeah. I checked too in the um, what's called in the, in the like the Amazon like the yeah, yeah, yeah. cast members. Yeah. Nothing. She didn't have a name. I think she just said like unnamed prostitute or something like that. Yes. Well, uh, I don't think the the actor shows up uh, again in the show, right? Maybe I one don't more time, so. like as a background. So. I don't believe um, so. But yeah, so Roz and uh, you know another character are are there and sort of you know quickly uh, come on to Joffrey and uh, let him know that Tyrion sent us, you know, to to you know have a good evening. And Joffrey's like, Tyrion sent you, and instead of just relaxing and enjoying a, a decent night. Uh, he decides to crank up his crossbow, you know, and intimidate Roz into basically beating, beating this other, the poor other prostitute to within, woman. A, to within an inch of her life. And then basically tells her, he's like, yes, you will go back to him and you will tell him exactly what it is that you've done because he wants him to see that like Tyrion doesn't have that. Like he has just as much control over Tyrion as, as Tyrion perceives to have over him. And it's kind of like this really kind of fucked up balancing act where it's like, okay, where, where Joffrey is once again, showing to Tyrion. He showed it to Cersei and now he's showing it to Tyrion that like, yeah, I can do what I want and you best watch out. Well, yeah, it's a weird threat because like uh, he's just really showing how dangerous he is and right. and reckless danger, you know, not like actual like, you know, I'll craft something and get you in your sleep, you know, type of thing. It's more like, oh, my God, like he, he I, I give him, you know, um, th- this gift, I give him this, you gift. know. And basically, instead of, you know, what is expected, which is having a night of pleasure with these two women, uh, he basically decides to beat one of them or have the other one beat her. And it's like, that's just reckless. Like what it says, you're, you're, you know, you do have this like anger sort of, you have this like power uh, dynamic going on, but, you know, Tyrion... Like, it's weird that they don't show the reaction because Tyrion would just be like probably outright disgusted about Joffrey and uh, just not think he's uh, legitimately can rule a kingdom. You know, it's like what else uh, is Tyrion to think in response to that? He even admits in the next episode that the king is beyond our help and he kind of like just gives up on trying to coach Joffrey in any way, shape or form. And he kind of refocuses his efforts on just the defense of the city, especially after the events of what happened between the end of this episode and the next, but there's only one other major scene in King's Landing that takes place, which is, of course, Tyrion, like, blackmailing Lancel into becoming his spy, which is just... That, that whole scene is just amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing. Like, Lancel comes in, trying to maintain this buff, gruff attitude, trying to demand... He's like, your sister demands that you release Pycelle, and Tyrion, of course... Tyrion doesn't even have to try with this one. Like, t- like Tyrion, like, had to expend, like, a little bit of effort with Pycelle, but, like, with this guy, he's like, he knows. He's like, yeah, Lancel ain't worth shit. I, I mean, like, he kind of just walks him right into just admitting that he that he's having sex with Cersei, and then basically says, it's like, oh, I'm gonna go tell Joffrey it's like oh save it for Joffrey he does love a good grovel and then he basically just like blackmails him and says okay now you're gonna tell me everything that Cersei does and it's it's just incredible just everything yeah, it, it's it's this. really bizarre to me like Jamie gets captured 
and oh hey here's cousin Lysel you know yeah, let's Lancel. just uh, also uh, Lancel, I, I will yeah. say Robert Baratheon <laughs> was spot on with his assault with his with his um with, with his take on Lancel Lancel Lannister God what a stupid name <laughs> <laughs> yeah God, that, I miss that, Robert. that I miss was a good Robert. scene but like uh you know it's just really bizarre like Cersei's just going around finding some cousin that she can replace Jamie with yeah. And oh, put, put, you know, put, 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 there's a lot of ladder wrongs between Jamie and Lancel Lannister. <laughs> like it's even there in the name. Well, yeah, but I, I think it's it's one of those things where she's just like, um, hey, you know, I, I just need some comfort, I guess, you know, in this really, you know, and I guess the stress of having Joffrey, who's like a terrible son, yeah. and not running the kingdom, the you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense in terms of like, you know, as as the show goes on, like Cersei. Cersei really is, you know, starts to lose it and, uh, you know, uh, complain about like how hard it is to actually, you know, rule. And, you know, she is in that sort of position with, you know, first early in the first season, Robert, where she is like, you know, one of two people ruling the kingdom. And then she is still she just remains there with Joffrey and, you know, um, Tomlin and uh, basically <laughs> th- throughout. What you know? Sorry, it's, no, it's uh, it's it's Tommen, but you said Tommen, Tommen. Tom- <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's it, uh, Tommen, uh, but um, you know, I'm getting the names a, a little messed up. But um, you know, basically, she's she is like maintaining the power and maintaining. Uh, you know, um, th- basically the king under the Lannister banner. And it's hard work, you know. It's it's not something that is really an easy task for her to take. You know, she is playing the Game of Thrones at a very high level, and you know, it's okay. So, uh, you know, Lancel just is one of those uh, you know pleasures that she takes to de-stress, I guess. You know. <laughs> It's phrasing. It just makes it even funnier. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's kind of a weird storyline because it's just some random cousin that they have, but it ends up obviously bite her in the ass. Obviously, in the worst way possible. But like season five, they don't they don't really focus the show on you know um, Jamie being away and she has to rely on someone, even if it's like not someone that she really cares about, like. You know, obviously Robert said, oh, what a dumb name. It's like she doesn't really care about him. She probably just chose him as like sort of a uh, daft, you know, person and, and just figured he could keep a secret. Yes. Um, you know, so it's it's one of those things where I wish, you know, in this particular storyline, it, it wasn't just sort of, you know, Tyrion getting back at her and and that's it. You know, I wish there was a little more depth into Cersei, like, you know, right. why she's doing this or like, you know, seeing her seeing a little more desperation of, you know, Jamie not being there. Like, you know, obviously we get the dialogue scenes later on when Jamie returns in the later seasons, um, you know, or it's like you weren't there and I had to deal with this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we don't necessarily see it, you know, as Jamie's absent. Uh, right. It's sort of just alluded to, which you know it's fine, right. but especially it, it because might be... Jamie has so little screen time in this in this whole season because he's a prisoner for most of it. Yeah, so I, I think it's one of those things where I, I I think putting it more on screen would have been awesome in season two. Just seeing you know Cersei really you know missing Jamie, really struggling to sort of hold the the kingdom together. There's like only a couple scenes where she just like starts freaking out and yelling at Tyrion. And that's about it. You know, right. she she really is not like um, the Cersei of the later seasons where right. she commands a lot of the episodes. Right. Um, and, that, and that was kind of exactly the way that it was in the books, almost by design, where the whole kind of thing, that way that Martin like kind of, you know, ramped it up is that between Clash of Kings and Storm of Swords, there was so much that happened. And then he gets all these characters out of the way at the end of Storm of Swords between the Red Wedding, Joffrey's Wedding, the Mountain, you know, the Mountain of the Viper trial, you know. All of that happening. So then, when the, when the dust settles in Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons, it is Cersei for the first time on her own. And again, he has this by design where she spent so much of her time just dealing with all these people that she seemingly doesn't like and can't stand and just irritate her. And then when she finally actually has a little bit of power, she just goes about it in the worst way possible. You know, it's almost she's set up as this very tragic character. You know, where when she finally has an iota of control 
she just almost doesn't know what to do with it ultimately. And the, and the problem is that again it, it makes her like a thankless character at first and so as a result it kind of you know forces her to be in all these scenes with everyone else kind of depending off of the reactions of everyone else and kind of going by this exposition you know of, of, to be informed of stuff about her and, and i guess that's what makes season five so refreshing as far as she goes because that's the first season where we're finally kind of we're in her head we're in her shoes you know we're finally seeing how things are going from her perspective you know but for now we're unfortunately relegated to only hearing about, you know, uh, uh, about her from other sources. And I definitely will. But in a way, it almost kind of works to his benefit because she's built up as such this, like, demonstrative force that when and, and, and then when we finally see her, like, having a chance to throw it out, it's like, oh, okay. So this is this this is what Cersei Lannister ultimately amounts to. But one more storyline before we get to the main Yeah, well, it's um, basically you already talked about it when uh, Tywin returns home, yes. right, to uh, his Harren keep. Hall. Harren yeah, Hall. Yeah, so that's sort of the end of the storyline. But uh, basically, he finds Gendry in the torture chair yes. and Arya, you know, the, the girl dressed as a boy, uh, you know, in the, in the, the, the pin pen, you know, whatever. Um, and then, uh, you know, so he comes and he's like, you know, these people have trades, you know, and he looks at Gendry a- in the ch- chair and he's like, what, what do you do? <laughs> you know, do you have, do you have a trade? And he's like a smith, and and Tywin like lights up. He's like, yeah, what the like, fuck? He's like, know? wow. Uh, he excuse me. Like, he looks at Polliver yeah. as Polliver's trying to like smack around Arya, and he's like, you'll do no such yeah. thing, you idiot. Besides, that's not a boy, that's a girl. And he's like, clearly, it's, it's yeah. almost like he's it's almost. And then, and then when Arya explains why uh, she's disguised as a boy, he's like smart. It's the beginning of like probably one of my like favorite sub arcs that just doesn't get talked about enough in the entire yeah, yeah, exactly. of the show, which is the back and forth between Arya and Tywin when he makes her his cupbearer because it's almost like he without knowing who she is the entire time like he almost grows to have this like they almost grow to like kind of have this mutual admiration for each other yeah, which in a like, way like, it's I love the part like you, you brought it up but you kind of skipped over it a little bit like when you know it's like oh very smart unlike this lot here unlike this lot here <laughs> yeah, and it's like you just see the look on the face of the soldiers, like, "Oh, we disappointed him again." Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 a really funny Dad, scene to deal with a bunch of disappointed kids. But yeah, it, it, it's it's hilarious. Like they get to Harren Hall, which of course has this rich, crazy history behind it that we'll get into in the later episodes. But it's this essentially this giant smoldering ruin that in the center of the realm that for whatever reason has this massive value because of, because of kind of I guess based on where it is location wise. But like it, like it starts off Arya and the prisoners are there. They're watching the this guy named the tickler torture all these people you know including this one poor guy they're basically trying to learn the location of the brotherhood without banners which we don't really know about this is the first time that we really hear about them and they're kind of built up and then until we finally meet them in the next season and kind of learn what their intentions are but they're basically from what we've heard this kind of rebel band that's giving the lannister forces in the riverland some trouble but of course this is where Arya starts reciting her list of names obviously to herself that she learned from yorin in the last episode and then of course uh, once a call, when it's Gendry's turn to be tortured after they unfortunately see the results of what happens with the boy that they were torturing the day before, when they are literally nailing his head on a pike. Uh, yeah, what a what a tor- This is right? all about this torture. Episode this episode is obsessed <laughs> with torture. It's like, really like, weird. Okay, so they put the guy in the chair, and then they have a bunch of hungry rats in the buck metal bucket. Yes, and they they put it on his stomach. And then they take a torch and they, you know, heat up the end of the bucket. Right. It's, it's in order and, to get the rat to, like, yeah. chew through his stomach. It's a torture technique I actually learned from the Fast and the uh, Furious franchise. I will have you know because they do it the torture sequence. Very similar to this in the second movie, Too Fast, Too Furious. Man, oh, that wow. fr- man, you know, oh yeah, man, man, that franchise was So crazy. it was it, the that torture was making the rounds uh, oh, yeah. know, in, in Hollywood. In Hollywood, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, during that time period. <laughs> but the, the main thing is, you know, it, it's... Uh, that guy endured that all day, and then he just got his head on a spike. And yeah. it's, it's like just imagine the amount of fear everyone in that pit. There's like a scene where a woman's like, "Please, just a scrap of bread." Yeah, and he like and I, I believe scene, she also gets that slapped scene where, down. Where, where the woman is like listening to the screaming, and she's like, "That's my son. It was my sister the day before." And my husband the day before that. And he's like, he lets him go. And then Gendry's like, he lets them go afterwards, right? And I almost, like, the woman didn't need to give any reaction. But I almost feel like just everyone almost like, or, or, or Hop, I said it. But it's almost like everyone, like, just should have turned around and been like, are, did you look around? you see where you are right now? Like, but I'll definitely say that, like, the, the, like again, it's, it's it, this is, again, just a, another setup storyline. But the one thing I will say is as far as, the thing, I, I remember these sequences from the book. Like, the sequences in the Riverlands where we actually, like, saw the war up close and personal right first with Arya. And then, obviously, is that, you know, Wes Brienne would 
would would was bringing Jamie to King's Landing in um in book three, and then obviously when she's going on her journey to find Sansa in, in book four, like you you have these very these long sequences that are this vivid graphic dis- depiction of all this awful torture that's kind of like supposed to be reminiscent of like the Black Plague, where it's like people that are like barely grasping onto life, even though they're like have limbs falling off and like maggots eating them from the inside out. It's like it's very very gruesome stuff, and like I think this episode they definitely started to shy away from that stuff as time went on, but I definitely think they did a really good job of like portraying that in the early seasons, especially since because like the budget kind of restricted them from being able to do obviously the more grand or more extravagant stuff. So like as far as like getting really in and down with the dirt like that, I think they did a really good job. Yeah, I also that. think it does a really good job. Like you look at the scene at the beginning of the episode with Rob, and it's like he has uh, medics in there healing people, and there's really just talk about strategy and no, I'm not going to torture people. And then you, you know, halfway through the episode, you get to Tywin coming into town and it's like this, the most horrific torture that you've ever seen on screen. And he's just like, no, oh, you know, that's enough. Like, like, <laughs> let's, let's put some of these people to work. Like, let, like, let, 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 let's pump the brakes there. Actually like he knew, what, we yeah, like- he, he knew what was happening when he was away. He didn't, right. you know, he kind of lets it happen into up to a certain point. You know, and that goes to my earlier point where Tywin knows how to use fear. You know, it's like he goes in there, he he has them sort of torture a few people, you know, and then he basically says, oh, hey, you know, let's put these people to work. And then it's like, oh, well, he kind of saved us, you know, but he has the ability to torture us. But he, he lets us, you know, work. He lets us live. And so that's like Tywin using that you know fear to his advantage and putting people in line something that joffrey really is not there to witness and and joffrey really doesn't understand how to do yeah and it's and it's interesting also kind of again how tywin recognizes it's i'm constantly in this weird conundrum with tywin lannister where on one hand right he's this brutal leader that you know seeks to subliminate and gain control over everything with power but then you have these like little brief moments where it's like yeah would he be the worst ruler because like he has these brief moments of fairness right he really only responds with violence when people provoke him obviously like he started this whole war as a result of you know his son who he didn't even really like that much being captured and he like grants mercy to people who he knows like he knows that they're not going to get anything out of them about the brotherhood so ultimately he uh, so so he grants like this moment of mercy ultimately and ends up kind of giving all these people a chance to like you know just live again so it's like it's one of It's one of those moments that we constantly find ourselves in where it's like, oh, man, this guy is such a tyrant. He's so awful. And then you meet him and he's like, well, he's not that bad of a guy. But he's clearly that guy is like, yeah, if you cross him, he will destroy you. And not only that, he will destroy you and any trace of your name. You know, obviously, we'll get to it in a later episode. But the reason why the song is entitled The Reigns of Castamir is because it's what happens when the Rain family attempted to rise up against Tywin Lannister. Because that's all that was left. There wasn't even any trace of their castle. For that, for them to uh, what's it called? For for that, for there to, to be remembered, because that's what happens when when Ty, when you cross Tywin Lannister ultimately. So it's a good scene. It's a good setup. It's a good setup sequence. It's a good kind of reinforcement. Uh, you know, again, playing off of what we what Arya learned last episode, and kind of again another like subtle s- subtle kind of a reintroduction to, to the might that is Tywin Lannister and kind of how he acted really in these early seasons as like this kind of looming overall force before he really started to take more of a uh, direct. Um, pl- uh, play in the action in the next two seasons but now we get to the main storyline and oh man i don't know about you pat but everything that happens in this main storyline is dynamite just from the minute that it happens so we're we're in the stormlands we're in um renly baratheon's head little finger arrives to negotiate with them Uh, Tyrion obviously sending him there in order to attempt to uh what's called get some semblance of alliance with um with, with catelyn stark obviously he attempts to negotiate with renly renly is not having it renly does not like the fact that little finger is here obviously and he immediately detects like oh you're trying to save your own skin because you know that if that when i march on king's landing i'm gonna take it and just and demolish the thing and so little finger kind of realizes he's getting nowhere with renly then he visits cat Cat obviously immediately accuses him of betraying Ned, saying that uh, you know, you know, like the minute that you get it, get half a chance, you betrayed him, and I trusted you to look after him. Which I'm like, again, just playing yeah, into it, that dutiful childhood a, connection. It's a great scene. Like he, he's literally like, 
you know, I, Cat, I Catelyn, we have a him. we have a second chance. You know, like <laughs> we we could get together. Like we he's really, together. we have this. He's shit. really I'm pushing. Like, for wow, it. I'm like wow. Like yeah. the, 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 the cojones <laughs> on this guy. Like man, I really think Littlefinger. Is, you know what the problem is? Littlefinger had such a great introduction in season one that I keep forgetting about how awesome he was in season two. Like season two, like man, season two Littlefinger is giving season one Littlefinger run for his money. Just as far as like man, yeah. there, well, he no, does there no boundaries to in this scene. He does everything right. You know, he really is genuine about. About his love for her and trying to like this is his motivation he he wears that on his face like this is the reason why i'm here this is why i'm doing it you know so uh Tyrion sent the right person for this deception because he could just rely you know it's instead of like you know the greatest lies are the truth you know so he just exaggerates the truth and sort of blinds her to what he's doing and he convinces her you know by sort of giving uh, Ned Stark's bones to her uh, this is sort of starts the ball rolling in her mind like maybe I should release Jamie on the side right. you know to to get my daughters back and, and you know I think this is one of uh, like this is a really good scene that really shows uh, this you know a, a quite clever deception at work absolutely and then of course, it ends with he has one more character interaction, right? And he does it. It shows he gets the cat, ultimately, because he obviously plays to her emotions, obviously, with the girls, and then presents Ned's bones, obviously, as a token of Tyrion's, uh, with, uh, uh, Tyrion's goodwill, right? The idea that, okay, yeah, it's um, at the very least, we're going to give you this as far yeah. as your list of demands. So he, he, gives the, he gives the bones, and he's like, hey, you want to get a, a ale at <laughs> the uh, tavern? It's like, <laughs> like it's really... You want to literally go on, your de- go on a date yeah. with your dead husband's body? Like It's, it's you know, he really is... Uh, uh, push it, it up, you know, yeah. the whole time. And then he has one more interaction, obviously the first of his couple interactions with Marjorie Tyrell, which kind of, again, this is where all the seeds are laid for like kind of what leads to later on in the season where Tyrion's like, okay, if you remove Renly, right, he made his play with Catelyn, obviously for for Jamie, right, but then he know, but then he notices he's like, okay, so Renly, he's like Renly himself is a problem, but Renly's forces might prove to actually be you know somewhat of an ally. So he starts to like probe around with Marjorie Tyrell, trying to because again he probably doesn't know who this woman is, but he notices definitely that she's beautiful, which obviously catches his eye, but also starts to understand that like a she's a little bit she's you know this girl is a little bit smarter for her own good, and she might be because he he knows Loras Tyrell is not the future of House Tyrell. He knows that Loris is a complete joke. He was even making jokes with Renly last season about it. But he kind of starts to gauge Marjorie a little bit. And, and even though, and Marjorie fires right back at him. Is like, yeah, I'm not having anything having to do with you. My husband is my lord, and I do his bidding, you know, no matter what rumors you may have heard. But Littlefinger starts to see this, like, okay, there may be an opening here, you know. But, of, of course, it's inevitable because before Renly has a chance to march on King's Landing, he unfortunately has to deal with Stannis. Oh, Stannis! Just the, Stannis really is the more and more I realize, just kind of the the what, what's it called like, like the kink in the armor, like the monkey in the wrench, kind of to quote Bruce Willis from Die Hard in this entire season. Because directly because of Stannis, Renly is taken off the board completely, robbing robbing the North of any sort of of any sort of ally. Right? He ultimately ends up becoming the foe that the Lannisters have to deal with when he eventually makes his march on Blackwater, and not to mention the fact that. Uh, again, it, he completely kind of cements himself as like his own player. Like he officially says, he's like, none of you are on on my side unless you declare your loyalty directly to me. I am on my own and I'm coming for this and no one is getting in my way. Because the negotiation scene that happens here next between Renly and Stannis, I think is really interesting where Renly is kind of just poking fun at him, not really taking him seriously and everything. And Stannis is, Stannis is like trying to like take him seriously for all intents and purposes. And kind oh, of yeah, saying, like, I, I would say stop this. Yeah, I would say Stannis is gives a really good offer. He's like, listen, yeah. you know, uh, kneel to me. I'll name you my heir, you know, basically until I have a son that's born. And, you know, we'll, we'll basically take over the kingdoms and, and put things back in our family and make sure that the rightful king is there. And, you know, it's like Renly really just wants to be king. And that's the problem here is he's not really thinking – you know, hey, what's best for our, you know, me? Right. What's best for the family? What's you know, he's really thinking just for himself. You right. know, like in terms of like I want to be king, and therefore I'm just going to take it, and I don't care about my brother because you know Stannis is someone that 
is sort of a, a little bit of a curmudgeon. So like he never really, uh, I guess, got too many friends. He doesn't have that many bannermen, I, I suspect. And so therefore his forces are not as overwhelming as Renly's. And that's really what this is all about is like Stannis, you know, has the right to the throne, but he doesn't necessarily have the troops, and right. that's why he wants Renly to sort right. of that's bend why the he needs to him. Renly's forces. And this negotiation, yeah. like I said, Catelyn literally says, it's like, are you kidding? She even says in her own words, like, are you kidding me? You two are brothers. You two should be helping each other out. But it's ultimately a battle of the egos because the crazy, because again, you're right. Stannis is the rightful heir, and Stannis has the best claim. But, and he, like he even says, the Iron Throat is his by rights. It even says, he's like, Lady Stark, I'm a little bit confused to see you here because your husband was a supporter of my claim, you know? And unfortunately, it's a matter of Stannis has the claim, but he doesn't have the troops. Renly has the troops, but he doesn't have the claim. If they kind of were able to come to this agreement, right, they, they uh, what's it called? They would be a pretty damn powerful force to be reckoned with, you know? The problem well, is that. They should have been able to, right? They because been, look but, at it. Like, if they took over the kingdoms and it was, you know, Stannis was the king. Renly would have, you know, a lot more. He a would lot be more a lo- power of a lot more power and a lot more control than he ever did under Robert. Really, because Robert really did. Robert even said last season Robert really didn't like any of his brothers. But unfortunately, it's all for naught. Renly cannot get out of his own way, and Renly kind of grits and bears his teeth by saying, "Yeah, the whole realm denies it." And uh, what's it called? And, 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 and when Stan yeah. says, "You think a couple of cloths will make you king?" and he's like, "No, but the men holding those cloths will." It's like Renly cannot get out of his own way, and it's ultimately leading him down a path that he unfortunately cannot come back from because unfortunately, Stannis is also. Well, uh, I do, I, I do think you know, um, the the whole thing uh, where um, you know Renly sort of dismisses Stannis's claim and says the whole realm dismisses it is very interesting because you know we remember the ravens were sent out and everybody knew about these sort of incest and and the fact that joffrey is not the uh the the actual legitimate heir like everybody knows about this and the fact is it's very interesting to see that the lannisters have been able to dispel this and really you know where renly says you know, across the realm, old and young, newborn babies, like no one wants you as the king. And it, really, they reject your claim. It, it's it's true. Like no one, no one generally wants Stannis there. And they don't believe, uh, you know, Ned Stark's, uh, you know, basically discovery that's public and in the open. So there might be some small minority that believes it. But for the most part, uh, the Lannisters were able to sort of, you know, quell that uh, blow that Ned Stark uh, tried to to inflict on them. Yeah, and ultimately, and like I said, it's all for naught because Stannis, obviously, on his ship has Davos Seaworth. Uh, remember his smuggling days? There's some really choice words there where he kind of interrogates him about his smuggling days, and you know, a little bit of exposition in order to like kind of. Um, but to, you know, bring back and refresh us on why Stanos entrusts Davos so much, even though he uh, and why Davos kind of follows him, because again, he's just, but he is fair, and he has Davos smuggled Melisandre ashore in order to kind of again. They, they, I, it's very clever how they shoot it, where they only shoot Melisandre, the character specifically, from either wides or close-ups, like of of the of the top of her body, and so you ultimately don't see that she is pregnant. And so, of course, when Davos smuggles her ashore, she's asking him some very choice questions about his wife and everything. And she does that thing again that she does a couple times throughout the show where he, as she, like, brings up the idea of seduction only with Davos. She doesn't actually try to seduce him before she reveals ultimately her naked body and she gives birth to the shadow baby. And that's how the episode ends, which brings us into our focus character segment, Melisandre, which, Pat, I'm, I'm actually interested in this. Like, what, what is your take on just the character of Melisandre, what she represented? Because I'll admit, for, she was a character that for a, a long time kind of confused me as far as her involvement here. It's, again, I was really confused where I'm like, okay, so we're meeting Stannis, a third Baratheon brother, and he's got this red priest, like that, you know, devotee that he's, fo- that he's following, that is kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, his muse, his sage, that is dictate, you know, his prophet almost. And I'm like, okay, I've, I've heard, I've seen this in, like, stories before, but like, I'm like, well, where is this going, ultimately? You know? Yeah, well, you know, I feel like the introduction to Stannis is linked with the introduction to Melisandre, and it's all about the atmosphere, right? You know, sort of this uh, almost like hermit king who decides to take on a new religion because somehow that's going to give him extra power to take the throne. You know, it, there's uh, something culty about it that really does work here, and it's like we get to see some cool stuff like the the gentleman that tries to poison her but he sacrifices himself and the poison doesn't have any impact on her like 
we're in the early days of Melisandre at this point, and for the most part, it's like she does have power, you know, granted by the Lord of Light. But like, what really is the Lord of Light's power? You know, it, it's it's how do these things come about? There, there's a big mystery going on, and I really think that's what Melisandre's character serves, uh, really, you know, for a good portion of the series. Yeah, it's 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 a very large source of mystery, right? It kind of brings us also we're we're crossing it over again with the, with our gotcha for segment with the red priestesses, right? Where the whole thing about them is no one really knows kind of a whole lot as far as the origin, right? They're obviously in the clergy of the faith of Relore, the Lord of Light, obviously from the Shadowlands of Ashai, right? They're kind of known for the red clothing that they wear. They appear to be really just zealous proselytizers because we see obviously after season four, throughout season five, when Tyrion is journeying throughout Essos, he sees the red priests all over Essos kind of preaching the name of Daenerys since she's quite literally the dragon reborn, right? And obviously the whole thing, right, is that R'hllor is supposedly, you know, the, the uh, what's it called? The, you know, the being of light, of warmth in the universe and that his ultimate enemy is the great other you know so it's interesting kind of where obviously the dragons are supposed to be this one kind of element of fire in the never-ending fight between ice and fire against you know the inevitable kind of coming of the white walkers but it's interesting now to see like this other aspect especially since because again of all of the religions that are introduced within westeros aside from the faceless men which again the extent of their sorcery i think is very limited but the red priestesses like have a full-on variety of of uh, what's it called uh, of, of powers at their hands and you know, obviously get the some examples the ability to see poison the ability to never get cold you know the ability to last for like hundreds upon thousands of years but under the guise of still remaining young and vibrant um you know in this case the ability to produce shadow assassins you know like the, 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 throughout throughout the show again it, it's the early kind of seeds being dropped of magic existing in this world without it necessarily focusing on it and even though ultimately as we see in the next episode it's used as a pl it's used kind of as, as a means of a technique of stannis in order to seize control of renly's forces without actually having to engage him in open battlefield it's it's interesting to me kind of how stannis is once again kind of and, and, and by proxy, Melisandre are kind of getting around this idea of honor, you know, where we obviously, again, that kind of is contrasting him from Ned Stark, where, again, kind of Stannis is almost introduces like the Ned Stark substitute in a way where it's like, okay, this is what Ned would have done if he were like kind of isolated from everything, but doing everything right. You know, as far, but, but Stannis, as we know, is obviously willing to bend or break the rules in order to get his way. You know, yeah, I, I forgot what Stannis says to Davos. He says, um... You know, Davos like pleads like this is not the way to do it, and then Santa says, you know, wars aren't won, right? You know, w without these types of deceptions. I forgot right. how they phrase it, but like, yeah, for the most part, it's like, no, he says surely there's a more honorable way to do it. And he's like, honor doesn't win wars or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. That's yeah, and. It, it, but Stannis like understands, you know, how to fight wars, right? That's right. part of his his myth leading up to his introduction is that he is someone that really that a knows very experienced battle commander. Yeah, how to win. And so he knows uh when to deplore, you know, or deploy deception. And this is one of those cases where uh, Melisandre has sort of seduced him, uh, promised to give him a son. It's going to be a shadow baby thing. Uh, but I don't even know how, like, how, like, just trust me. Is that what she said? Just Kinda. like, tr yeah, just, it's, just it's, trust it's me. Like, like, oh, yeah, just go with it. This will totally work out. <laughs> you know, how much does Stannis know about the, the giving birth to a shadow, the shadow clearly, floating? Clearly not that much. I think, you know, knows, into the like, area. That's something that I always wondered. It's like, it's like, did he know, like, the extent of what his seed, for lack of a better word, would, would be accomplishing in this instance? Because, and the other crazy thing, too, is this is another storyline where they completely. Where, where they completely like change it from the, from the books because in the books also you have um what's it called you have also the fact that Renly has Edric Storm which is another bastard of Roberts that was outside of King's Landing who in the show does not exist and elements of his character were mixed with Gendry that we see in season three obviously um where 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 um Stannis desperately with Stannis Stannis actually pulls another play like this first he has Renly killed then he has this Maester. Um, who is looking over Storm's End, who is keeping this bastard who he wants um, a, a, under his protection, and then he deploys the same Shadow Assassin thing in order to kill him there, you know? So they obviously mix that into one, but 
Obviously, we see kind of the extent of that continue into next episode, but I think it's interesting kind of how Stannis makes this play without kind of really knowing what's going on. He just knows that, like, yeah, Melisandre is going to handle this, and then at the end of the day, I'll have one less enemy on the field, you know? But he obviously does deal with it because at the end of the season, we see him, like, come into, like, personal blows with it where he, like, kind of admits he's like, I killed my brother in order to get this, and I didn't even win because the sad fact is that of the at the end of the day is that Stannis is doing all this and Melisandre is helping him do all this stuff but he does but he but he loses at the end and and, and the and the sad fact is that he kind of never recovers from blackwater from, from his loss in the blackwater so yeah I, I would say you know tracking Stannis throughout the rest of the show and the lord of light like when you get something from the lord of light it's almost it comes with like a price yeah, it's a heavy price, but it's also like, you know, you might not necessarily get everything that you wish for. You know, it's you're only going to get certain things. And, you know, it's it's yeah, you got you got your wish. You got Renly's army and as we'll see later in the season, uh he can use that to attack. But ultimately at the end of the day, like the Lord of Light is not guaranteeing that he could win. Right, exactly. And that's ultimately where we end our episode. The only thing left that we have to do is, of course, you guys know it. It's a staple of it, the death count of the episode. We had two deaths this episode, which is those poor Lannister guards at the beginning who got killed by Grey, who were killed by Grey Wind. Uh, of course, RIP, that guy who did the fart joke. And then, of course, the guy <laughs> that the tickler had tortured, whose head we saw later being nailed on the spike. Those are our two deaths. Yeah, of the I, I think I think a few hundred extras were probably killed. You yeah, know, uh, in that. But, but again, we we already we, talk, we already talked about our stance on on battles on uh, and all the people who die in battles. Yeah. So we're gonna leave it at that. And that was ultimately our most our that was our next episode of Game of Thrones, Talking Thrones, Garden of Bones. A lot of bones, a lot of owns going on here just in general. We'll be back yeah, next you, week. You, you would think we would have talked more about Danny for an episode that's named <laughs> after <me>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. We're just going to have more of her. Now she's going to be wandering around the city instead of in a, in a car, instead of uh, in the desert. So at the very least, that'll be that, that'll be somewhat, some, somewhat better. But people, let us know your thoughts on this episode in the comment section below. Be sure to keep tuning in every Sunday for our continuing coverage of this show. We're only getting started. We're almost at the halfway point, Pat. Halfway... Uh, next week halfway point of season two uh then we got another five episodes after that it's crazy we are we are banging these out ultimately where can uh where can the good people find you uh listen yeah basically here on talking tv that's where i am right now uh i do have an instagram at patrick w huber hey maybe i'll post there i, I keep saying i will I, I take photos but uh i never transfer them to my phone so uh, <laughs> I, I need to get on this i need i need to just get the workflow going uh, and get it done. Yes, and you can find me right here on the Talking TV channel, Facebook and Instagram at Talking TV Podcast, where I post every single day, sometimes twice a day. Also, if you guys click the subscribe button below, click the bell button next to it, click, leave a comment down below. You'll be helping out the channel tremendously. Like I said, new episodes of Talking Thrones uploaded every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you guys once again for tuning in. Follow me on my personal social medias at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. We'll catch you guys next week. 12 seasons in a short film. And watch more fucking movies. Yeah, get tortured more. less. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's and my advice. More, and watch more Game of Thrones. We'll see you guys next time.